I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. In a moment, I'll read Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. Let me give a little bit of a preface to the message first. Um, this is the next text, of course, in our journey through the book of Exodus. And it comes to a very important and sensitive topic, the topic of slavery. And this week, and I feel it important to give some preliminary uh, words about this subject, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll dive into an exposition of the passage. Uh, so this week we'll try to do a bit of a biblical overview of some ideas and concepts about this topic of slavery, and next week we'll come uh, to a more detailed look at this chapter. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free, for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, he who, or who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for the entirety of your word, even passages that can be hard for us to wrap our minds, our hearts around. We thank you that you have spoken to us. Help us, Father, to listen to you. And I ask you now for help, that you would help me to speak clearly, not to stray from your truth. And I pray that your people would listen attentively to your word, and you'd give us understanding in our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I would expect that if you were paying attention to the reading of God's word just now, or if you've read this passage before, that some of the verses in that would leave you scratching your head. They might do more than that. You might need more than just an intellectual curiosity about what it means. You might have some issues with what it says. And you might wonder, how can it be that words like this, a text like this, is in the Word of God? It doesn't seem right. I received an email a, about five years ago 
from a young lady who's a believer, but her growth in Christ was stunted because of a dilemma that she had with this passage of Scripture, Exodus chapter 21, and what it said about slaves. She was having trouble trusting God, believing Him to be good, because of some of the things that she read here. She wondered, how could this come from God? She says, it seems so cruel. This chapter has been a point of contention with many for many years. And it's become, to some degree, a point of scoffing for those who believe not just this chapter, but the whole of the Bible, because people look at this passage of Scripture, sees that it talks about slavery and some of the things that it says about slavery, and thinks it's utterly preposterous that anyone would believe this book or accept this word. There's an article that was written titled, the Biblical Argument for Slavery, subtitled, Can the Bible Mislead? It was written, I believe, in the 90s, and the approach of the article was to show that there have been many Christians throughout history that have held that the Bible promotes, endorses, condones slavery. He uses, the author does, arguments from Christians in the South, the United States, from R.L. Dabney to most recently John Murray, who argued that the Bible supported Southern slavery. He begins his article by saying that slavery in the ancient world was not judged to be a moral evil. He held that not only in Israel, but in the rest of the ancient Near East, slavery was not looked at through the same lens that the modern world looks at it. It wasn't judged to be a moral evil. But here's where he begins to poke a bit with his knife. He goes on to say that the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments, endorse slavery. He goes on to make his case by saying that theologians, or most theologians, quote, until the late last century held that the Bible sanctioned slavery. And then he lists a few of them, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Augustine, Chrysostom, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin. If you don't know those names, those are some of the Hall of Fame Christians throughout history. And he's holding them out as people who say that the Bible sanctioned slavery. And then he shows, quite convincingly, that many theologians in the antebellum South were furious with abolitionists who used scripture to try to undo slavery. He quotes from the Old School Presbyterian General Assembly Report of 1845, which states that slavery was based on, quote, some of the plainest declarations of the Word of God. He goes on to say that to deny it, according to like-minded theologians, was to deny the authority of Scripture. The author 
posits that holding a slave in any circumstance, any case, at any time, is sin. He holds that out as a given, that it's always a sin. But he refers to Southern theologians who claim just the opposite, that sin is not the slave-holding, but the so-called sin of appalling magnitude was the claim by abolitionists that slave-holding was a sin, when the Bible clearly endorses it. His argument rests on this. The Bible endorses slavery, he says. And he has another premise that is key. He supposes that slavery is always a moral evil. And you see where that kind of backs the Bible into a corner. And so his conclusion is this. Here is an example of a social structure endorsed by the Bible which can no longer be condoned. What he is saying is that the Bible condoned its sanctioned slavery. We have evolved since then in our ethics and understand that slavery in all cases, everywhere, is always a sin. And so the Bible condones something that was sinful, and therefore we cannot always accept what the Bible says. It can mislead us if we take it literally. The Bible, he would claim, these are my words, not his, but I think the summary of his conclusion, is an archaic book subject to its times and cannot be trusted in all the matters in which it speaks. We have entered the age of enlightenment. We have evolved past those archaic times. And his target in that article that was written was quite plain. His ambition was not just to heap up scorn on slavery, but what he wanted to do was to emancipate women from the shackles of the biblical view of women. And if he could prove that the Bible is an archaic book that doesn't have enduring authority because it gets moral judgments wrong, then it may have other judgments that are wrong, including its view on women. And so he wanted to emancipate women from the shackles of Scripture. That's from someone who claims to believe the Bible to some degree and be somewhat of a believer. Other Bible scholars who are atheists, and they do exist, laugh at the Bible's view of slavery, and more so even laugh at those who believe the Bible to be inspired. One prominent biblical scholar who is a so-called agnostic atheist had a podcast in which he and another uh, atheistic scholar who is an expert on the ancient Near East, basically laughed throughout their podcast on Christians who take the Bible literally. And he was basically begging Christians that they would read their Bible in context. Not just read Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are, which many believers know, but he said he wishes that they would go on to Exodus chapter 21, 
And he quoted from some of the verses I just read and said that if people really read that, they would no longer accept the Bible as the Word of God. This is obviously a subject that is sensitive, but it's also a subject that is controversial in its approach to how people view the Bible. The goal of this message is not to provide an exposition of Exodus 21, Lord willing, that comes next week. My goal is to speak to you, Christian, and encourage you that you do not need to be embarrassed by any part of God's Word. I don't want you to think that there, is, there are skeletons in the closet that we just need to keep behind closed doors and you can't bring to the light of day. You should not feel like you have to rip a page out of your Bible and just throw it away for the Bible to be more credible to the people of our day and age. I'm not trying to persuade any skeptics here. I'm trying to speak to believers who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and to encourage you that he is always good in all that he says. When I responded to that email that I received from that young lady who was struggling with slavery in the Bible, I wrote her a a mini book, and so I won't quote from all of it here, probably more than she ever wanted to read. But I wrote to her some preliminary considerations. And these are convictions that I hold Anytime I come to Scripture, I don't think that they're convictions rooted in blind faith. I think they've been proven over time. But this is what I wrote to her. I said, I come to any text of the Bible presupposing a number of things. Number one, if it is in the Bible, it is from God. Number two, God is unparalleled in his goodness. There is no one as good as he is. Number three, God is unparalleled in his justice. There is none as just as he. He is the standard of justice. Number four, where something appears to be unjust or not good about God in the Bible, it is due to either my own misunderstanding of the text, it does not teach what I think it teaches, or my own misunderstanding of the application of goodness and justice in this fallen world. My fifth presupposition about the Bible is when I am unsure which of the above it is, namely when I'm uncertain about a passage, I return to the solid foundation of numbers two or three and consider that I will be able to solve number four as I mature in my understanding of God and his word or when I am brought to heaven. In the meantime, Nothing can convince me to give up the premises of number one through three. That might scare some people to think that you have some unshakable convictions in your life that you're not willing to give up. Because then it just feels like you're, you're too fundamentalistic. But those convictions, again, are not rooted in blind faith. They are now rooted in 20 years of testing God's word and it never failing. 
It is rooted in an experiential knowledge of the goodness and grace of our God and Savior. It is an absolute conviction that God, if he is to be God, always speaks what is true. So now, as we kind of turn the corner here to play out how this uh, works in regarding the topic of slavery, I still want to encourage you that God's word is true and stands fast. One of the problems that is uh, out there in people who scoff at the Bible or who get caught up in what the Bible says about slavery is that there is a fallacious line of reasoning that tries to equate what the Bible says about slavery with what the United States experienced in its own slavery. American slavery has left such a scar on our social conscience that if you make anything equate on the, any level to the horrors of what was practiced in that system, then whatever you have made it touch becomes plagued with the same disease. So by the very usage of the language, slave or slavery, the immediate connotation is the slavery of the southern states pre-Civil War. And if anything that touches that, touches a nerve that says, that was horrible, and so anything that is even close to that is equally horrible and awful. Should be said that we ought not to be ignorant of the fact that there are other horrors of slavery that have not happened in the Western Hemisphere or have not been perpetrated by white Europeans. The rest of the world has known horrors of slavery perpetrated by people of different ethnicities. Slavery is a global evil in many ways. But because of this still oozing wound of our nation's history, there is a sensitivity in us that anything that looks similar to what the United States experienced immediately provokes in us a declaration that's wrong and we might ask the question, well, why does the Bible use the word slave or slavery at all? That's a good question. And one that we'll dive into more next week. But for now, I simply want to show that the Bible in no way justifies the American slavery system as it was practiced. Indeed, if the Bible was followed, then slavery on a scale and of the type seen in the U.S. would not have existed. I think the main problem is that critics or skeptics or confused believers get caught up on this one page of Scripture or on this one topic and forget that the key to interpretation of the Bible is context. And the biggest context of all is the whole Bible. 
And you cannot rip this chapter out of the context of the rest of what we know about who God is and what he's doing in this world. Furthermore, we need to remember that this is coming in the context of a God who has given these laws, not just Exodus 21, but all of the laws to a people that he's just rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And he's given them not just Exodus 20, but he's given them Exodus 21, 22, 23, 24, and so on, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's given them the whole law. And so whatever the Bible says about slavery is to be balanced out by the fact that there are other laws governing society and individual lives that factor into the way slavery would have been conducted in that society. And so whatever kind of slavery the Bible is speaking about would be a slavery that is practiced with the rest of the laws in mind. And you remember, of course, the two boiled down laws of the whole Old Testament. Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, it's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So whatever kind of slavery the Bible is talking about is a slavery that is to be infused with a love for God and a love for your neighbor. You cannot rip this out of context. Try to skewer it with your scoffing when the rest of the scriptures teaches so clearly God's expectation for the conduct of his people that would infiltrate whatever system this is that the Bible is referring to. But I want to take some time here and lay side by side for us the American system of slavery and what the Bible would have to say about it so that you can see for yourselves that it is talking in many ways about two different things. Let's pick apart the American system of slavery for a moment. The justification for American slavery was based in part on racism. That was what legitimized it in many people's minds. And they used many times the scripture to try to justify it. The curse of Noah on his son. You may remember that story in Genesis where uh, Noah is drunk, is naked, and his name is Tent, and one of his sons goes in and sees him. And Noah finds out about this and issues a curse. And he says in Genesis 9.25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. That concept was used by some enslavers to suppose that Canaan was the ancestor, or Ham was the ancestor of Africans. And so the Bible prophesies their enslavement. But that text says nothing about racial superiority, and it really says nothing about the necessity of men to enact slavery from one line of Noah to the other. But still, some theologians argued about racial superiority. According to one Southern theologian during that time, he wrote, quote, men are not naturally equal in strength, talent, virtue, or ability. And different orders of human beings naturally inherit different sets of rights and franchises. The Negro is a subservient race. He is made to follow and not to lead, end quote. 
Or as Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederate States said, quote, the Negro is not equal to the white man. Slavery, subordination of the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This is in conformity with the ordinance of the Creator, end quote. Well, no, that's not true. When God looks at man, and as he expresses his mind through the pages of Scripture, he basically puts man into two categories. He puts man and looks at man in this way. Are you in the first Adam, or are you in the second Adam? That's the division that God divides all human beings into. The first Adam was the man who rebelled against God, who fell into sin, and all of his descendants inherited the guilt and corruption that came through him. And so every last human being that is tied to Adam, which is every human being except for Jesus Christ, has inherited that guilt and deserved condemnation and have displayed that in the way that we live, so much so that Romans 3.23 says, there is no distinction. Why? For all have sinned. Sin levels every human being onto the same plane. There is no inferiority or superiority one to the other. We're all laid low before God on the basis of our sin. Then there's the second Adam. God-man, Lord Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life and offers to all men, equally so, not on the basis of race, talents, or abilities, access into the throne room of God through His blood. And the way that you access it is not by your skin color. The only way you access it is through faith in Him. The Bible does not promote race-based slavery, but rather compassion. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel was to love the foreigner because that's what they were in Egypt. Israel, God's redeemed nation, was to remember their sojourning and allow that to change the way that they treated sojourners. This was an Old Testament moment of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so the American 
system of slavery was fundamentally flawed. Furthermore, the American system of slavery was based on man-stealing. There are estimates that six to seven million slaves were transported to the Americas in the 18th century. And most of them were captured and enslaved against their wills. This was kidnapping, plain and simple. It was the separating of families. It was man-stealing. But consider what Exodus chapter 21 has to say about that. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That single verse alone virtually dismantles all of the practice of slavery for all time. It shows that slavery in the Bible is something quite different than what we come to associate it with. Or consider Exodus 21, verse 3. If he, referring to the slave, comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. That's a far cry from separating families at the auction block. Next, American slavery required lifelong service. There was no end in sight for those who were enslaved. It was lifelong slavery unless they escaped or were freed by their master. It was a completely bleak outlook. The Bible, on the other hand, as we see in Exodus 21, shows that there was a redemptive quality about the slavery there. In fact, if you notice the chapter, the portion that I read, the laws are primarily an explanation of the freeing of slaves, not so much about how you come to enslave them, but about how you let them go. And there was a time limit for Hebrew slaves in Exodus 21, verse 2. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. There's a light at the end of this. There's something you're working towards, something you're striving to get to, not just the endless, repetitive motions day after day. Or consider Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, which speaks about escaping from a cruel master. It says, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. It's a key text that if it had been practiced would have eliminated much of the cruelty of American slavery. If a slave rightly acquired belonged to a master who disobeyed God's ways, then there would be recourse for the slave to escape with the expectation that whoever received him or found him would be obligated to protect him. It's a fascinating concept, isn't it? What an allowance by God for a slave to escape from a cruel master. Once again, it shows there is a drastic difference 
between these two systems. Next, American slavery commonly practiced mental and physical dominion of the slaves. They tried to keep them in check through constant barrages of antagonistic words and physical abuse. They prevented education and kept slaves in check through brutal practices. There's a book that was published in 1839 titled American Slavery as it is, Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses. It's over a 200 page book compiling eyewitness testimony of what was going on in slavery in that era. There's a testimony of Mr. Nehemiah Calkins, who was a witness of the treatment of slaves in the southeastern part of North Carolina. I want to read to you extensively from what he describes seeing. He says, quote, I spent 11 winters between the years 1824 and 1835 in the state of North Carolina, mostly in the vicinity of Wilmington, and four out of the 11 on the estate of Mr. John Swan. There were on his plantation about 20 slaves, male and female. The cabins or huts of the slaves were small, and were built principally by the slaves themselves as they could find time on Sundays and moonlight nights. They went into the swamps, cut the logs, backed or hauled them to the quarters, and put up their cabins. He goes on, It is customary in that part of the country to let the hogs run in the woods. On one occasion, a slave caught a pig about two months old, which he carried to his quarters. The overseer, getting information of the fact, went to the field where he was at work and ordered him to come to him. The slave at once suspected it was something about the pig, and fearing punishment, dropped his hoe and ran to the woods. He had got but a few rods when the overseer raised his gun, loaded with duck shot, and brought him down. It is a common practice for overseers to go into the field armed with a gun or pistols, and sometimes both. He was taken up by the slaves and carried to the plantation hospital, and the physician sent for. A physician was employed by the year to take care of the sick or wounded slaves. In about six weeks, this slave got better and was able to come out of the hospital. He came to the mill where I was at work and asked me to examine his body, which I did, and counted 26 duck shots still remaining in his flesh, though the doctor had removed a number while he was laid up. The slaves are obliged to work from daylight till dark as long as they can see. When they have tasks assigned, which is often the case, a few of the strongest and most experts sometimes finish them before sunset. Others will be obliged to work till 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, almost finish their tasks, or take a flogging. The whip and gun or pistol are companions of the overseer. The former he uses very frequently upon the Negroes during their hours of labor without regard to age or sex. I will relate one circumstance which shows the little regard that is paid to the feelings of the slave. During the time that Mr. Isaiah Rogers was superintending the building of a rice machine, one of the slaves complained of a severe toothache. Swan asked Mr. Rogers to take his hammer and knock out the tooth. One day, Mr. Swan beat the slave severely for alleged carelessness in letting a boat get adrift. The slave was told to secure the boat whether he took sufficient means for this purpose, I do not know. He was not allowed to make any defense. 
Mr. Swan called him up and asked him why he did not secure the boat. He pulled off his hat and began to tell his story. Swan told him he was a liar and commenced beating him over the head with a hickory cane and the slave retreated backwards. Swan followed him about two rods, threshing him over the head with the hickory as he went. As I was one day standing near some slaves who were threshing, the driver, thinking one of the women did not use her flail quick enough, struck her over the head. The end of the whip hit her in the eye. I thought at the time he had put it out, but after poulticing and doctoring for some days, she recovered. Speaking to him about it, he said that he once struck a slave so as to put one of her eyes entirely out. There's another testimony from another gentleman. This reads, in January 1838, a Negro of Widow Phillips ran away, was taken up and confined in Pulaski Jail. One Gibbs overseer for Mrs. P mounted on horseback, took him from confinement, compelled him to run back to Elkton, a distance of 15 miles, whipping him all the way. When he reached home, the Negro, exhausted and worn out, exclaimed, you have broken my heart, that is, you have killed me. For this, Gibbs flew into a violent passion, tied the Negro to a stake, and in the language of a witness, cut his back to mincemeat. But the fiend was not satisfied with this. He burnt his legs to a blister with hot embers and then chained him naked in the open air, weary with running, weak from the loss of blood and smarting from his burns. It was a cold night, and in the morning, the Negro was dead. Yet this monster escaped without even the shadow of a trial. The book goes on for 200 more pages. Listen to Exodus 21. Verses 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Or Exodus 21, verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. The very things that haunt us as a nation in the slavery that was committed are the things that the Bible strictly forbids. And if God's ways were adhered to, never would have happened. People who scoff at the Bible look at slavery and judge it as evil. But on what basis do they have to declare it evil? The only basis that we have to declare anything right or wrong is the law of God. He is the one who establishes what is right and wrong, good and evil, true and false. And it is the word of God that brings condemnation to the way slavery was practiced in the South. Yes, slavery experienced in the United States was sinful. And the word of God confirms that, more than confirms it, it states it to be so. The Bible even more specifically, the Old Testament, the source of the scoffing, does not endorse that kind of race-based, kidnapping, lifelong, cruelly enforced slavery. 
not sanctioned by the Old Testament, not sanctioned in the New Testament. But after saying all of that, it must be stated also that you cannot escape the real fact that the Bible governs a form of slavery in the Old Testament. And that's what we will look at next week. To give a little preview of the answer, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it is realistic. It knows the world that we inhabit. It knows that it is a world corrupted by sin and sinful men need to be governed. We'll look more at that next week. I told you that the goal this morning was that you don't need to be ashamed of the Bible or any page in the Bible as God's word in revelation of himself in regard to slavery. I hope that you've seen some of why you don't need to be ashamed of God's word. You can stand firm on it. But I want to give you two last and obvious reasons for why you can embrace God's word and the whole of it. The pretty obvious ones. The first very obvious fact is that preceding the whole law, which includes Exodus 21 and the laws about slavery, is this statement in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. It says, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The kind of oppressive, exhausting slavery that Israel experienced in Egypt was only overthrown by the great emancipator, God himself, and none other. It was the Lord God who freed the Israelites from slavery. And so if anybody has the right to speak with authority about this subject, it would be the one who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That's the first and obvious fact that should allow you not to be ashamed about the Bible and what God says about slavery. But the second fact is a bit more personal, but I think equally obvious. God has earned my trust in regard to this subject, not through some sort of blind faith, just accept it and forget it and move on, or through closing of my eyes to some unsavory parts of the Bible. Rather, the Lord has earned my trust on this, and I'm sure yours as well, because he has quite literally saved me from slavery. It's not the kind of slavery with whips and chains, but it was slavery nonetheless. Something even more insidious. It was a bondage to sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I remember that time in my life. Sure, many of you do as well. And you can look back at it and you can almost see the shackles on your hand and on your feet as you followed slave master sin wherever it bid you go and there was nowhere else you could go and the worst of it was you wanted to go with him you loved it you craved it you wanted it 
You didn't even know that you were enslaved. But all that time, I was living in the shadow of death. Of course, where slavery always leads. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to our great emancipator, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rescued me and you from the bondage to sin through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who quite literally made the ransom payment for my freedom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the ransom payment made not with silver and gold, but with his blood. And Jesus said, Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, by the grace of God and his grace alone, I'm not a slave, but a son in the household of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So there is no reason to be embarrassed about what this God says about slavery. Because of all of the so-called experts in the world about this subject, there is one who surpasses them all, the one who has freed Israel from sin, or freed Israel from Egypt, and has freed his people from their sin. Don't be ashamed of what God says. Believe him, trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that trust to you now. You are the God who rescues from slavery. You've made that so plain and obvious. You're worth trusting. So Lord, we will trust you. We will trust what your word says. Pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom even next week as we come to that passage to look at what you said. Lord, because you have freed us, help us to live in the freedom that you have given us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.